We're in the middle of a series on character, and today we're talking about character in our relationships, and especially character in our friendships. And I was thinking about that, and it brought to mind a situation that I was in, a challenge, I think, that I was having about three years ago. And it wasn't a challenging time in my life because of problems that were going on. It was a challenging time because of some great opportunities that I was having. You see, uh, about three or so years ago, Ann and I decided that it was time to move on from our ministry at Princeton University, where I was a chaplain. We had been there for about 13 years, and uh, we decided that it was time to move on from that and get involved in a more church-based ministry. And one day I got a telephone call, and the opportunity had arisen to consider coming to relatively new uh, church in northern New Jersey in some rinky-dink town. I think I'd barely heard of it. It was Summit or something like that. I knew there was like a fancy mall nearby, but that was about all I knew. And, and I was told it's kind of an unusual church, a little bit different from what most people are used to. So I had that opportunity, and we were beginning to explore that and check it out and find out more about it when another opportunity arose at at pretty much the same time, and that was to stay in Princeton and move about a mile away or so and become one of the pastors at the church where we had attended for the past 25 years. So we had this choice, be in a town that we loved with people that we knew and be involved in this church that had just meant so much to us for the past 25 years, or take a chance and do something different and something new and something that sounded pretty exciting but a little bit different uh, up here at Renaissance. And you know how it turned out, but one of the things that was helpful to me as we were kind of working our way through this, we were talking together, we're praying together, we're talking to our relatives, we're talking to our friends. And one of the things that helped me was the counsel, the advice of two particular friends. And, and what's interesting about these guys, and if you've ever lived in a university town, this won't come as a surprise to you, one of them was literally a rocket scientist, and the other was a cryptographer, a, a code breaker, or at least that's what I think he does. He's got a PhD in mathematics, and uh, he goes down to Washington, D.C., and talks to like the generals and this sort of thing, especially when there's fancy stuff going on in the news. So that's kind of what I think he does but he would have to uh, kill me if he were to tell me what he does. Anyway, so I was talking to these two different guys, and the thing that stood out about the advice that they gave me that was, it was a little bit different from some of the other advice that I was getting is these guys were focused exclusively on me and my family and what would be best for us and what God might want us to be doing. They didn't try to persuade me one way or the other. You know, they, they helped me to evaluate the two options, stay in Princeton or come up here uh, to Renaissance, but they weren't trying to steer me in one direction or another, whereas a, a lot of my other friends, they were trying to be helpful, but you could tell their personal biases were getting in the way uh, just a little bit. The other thing that they did is they wanted to help me to figure out what was best for me and best for my family whether or not that was what would have been best for them personally. And in the case of one of the guys, we were pretty close friends. We'd hang out a lot together. We'd talk a lot together. Uh, Our daughters hung out together. The families were good friends. And in fact, he said to me, don't you ever say this here in Princeton. You can say it up there at Renaissance. Don't ever tell people here in Princeton. 
my personal preference is for you to stay here and for you to, to, to be, you know, join the staff of, of the church here. But I think God is leading you to go up to Princeton, uh, go, up to, go up to Renaissance, go up to Summit. I think that's where God would have you be. I think that's where you fit better. So he put aside his personal preferences and gave us the advice that he thought was best for us. And the third thing that these guys did is they pointed me to God and they said, you know, you, know you, you should pray and, and ask God for guidance and this sort of thing. But they said, also ask yourself, how has God created you? How has he wired you? Who has he made you to be? And where do you think he can most effectively use you? And so all these three things kind of came together and I felt like these two guys were the kinds of friends that I needed at that time. And, and you know how the decision turned out. We we're really thrilled to be here. We're, we're excited about it. We miss our friends back down in Princeton, but we look back and we say, this was unquestionably the right decision. And these two guys were, were very, very helpful in making that decision. So have you ever stopped to, to think, what do you like in a friend? You know, your closest friends, the people who you really appreciate the most, what about it, what about them is it that makes you appreciate them as your friends? Or if you don't have those kind of close friendships, and I know there's some hurting people out there who are, are feeling lonely and going through difficult times, what is it that you'd like to have in a friend? What are you looking for in a friend. I think most of us want friends who are faithful, you know, who will be there when we need them. Uh, we don't want to feel abandoned in our time of need when things get going tough. You know, you got with this phrase, fair weather friends. That's not what we, we, what we want. We want people who will be there for us when we need them. We want friends who like us for who we are. We appreciate people with whom we can really be ourselves. Uh, we don't want to have to put a, a, a mask on or an act on for them. We want them to like us in spite of the fact that our favorite football team is the Dallas Cowboys, you know, and we are living 15 miles or 10 miles from Giant Stadium here, and they still want to be our friends. And I am still looking for a friend here up at Renaissance, you know, up here in Summit, because nobody wants to be my friend except for like a couple people. We got a cowboy fan. There we go. My prediction, it's going to be the boys and the Jets in the Super Bowl, and that's what it's going to be. Anyway, we'll have to see what happens there. But, but seriously, we want people with whom we can be ourselves. We can tell our stupid jokes. They know what we're like, and they still like us, you know. They know our faults, and yet they still love us. They care about our hopes and our dreams and our desires. Uh, they want to meet our needs. They want to do nice things for us. They want to understand us and see how they can help us. And we are happy to help them. We're happy to reciprocate. We're happy to have that kind of a mutual friendship with them. But we don't want to feel like they're in it simply for what they can get from us, that we're some sort of a means to their ends. We are happy to do things for them, but we also want to feel like they do things for us as well. And we really appreciate those that love us unconditionally. We're going to hurt our friends. We're going to hurt the people that we love. And we want to have friends who when we fall down, when we fail, when we hurt them, they're going to be willing to forgive us. They're willing to to help pick us up and dust us off, clean us up, give us a hug, and move on with us. And that's the kind of friends that we want to have. And if we stop and think about it for a minute, I think that's the kind of character that we want to exhibit 
in our friendships, in our relationships with other people as well. We don't want just to receive it from them. We want to give that to other people. And it's not always easy and it's a challenge, but that's what I think all of us want to have. And one of the key points that Rich made in his uh, message last week is that character comes, true character comes from having a moral compass. And I really like the image that he came up with there. Having this moral compass that is calibrated by God's truth through a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's like we've got this compass in our hearts and it's pointing to Jesus. And when it's doing that, that's when we're going to have this kind of character. That's when we're going to be the kind of friend that we want others to be from for us. Rich used the life of King David last week. He talked about uh, David, who was Israel's second king. Saul was Israel's first king. And, and God described David as a man after God's own heart. David had a heart for God. He had a moral compass that was calibrated uh, to God's truth because he had that kind of a relationship with God. And uh, Rich talked about that as kind of the foundation for our character. This week, what I want us to do is look at the life of David's best friend, Jonathan. And what's interesting about Jonathan is that he was the oldest son of David's predecessor, King Saul. So Saul was the first king of Israel, David was the second king of Israel, and Saul's son, Jonathan, was David's best friend. And uh, you may be familiar with the story of how David killed Goliath. I think if you were here about three or four weeks ago, Rich mentioned that, and he's going to be talking about that again in a few weeks. You know, uh, Goliath was the champion of the enemies of Israel called the Philistines, and he's this big, big giant of a man who makes Shaquille O'Neal kind of look like me, you know, in comparison with with Shaq there, you know, and uh, no one's going to mistake me for some big, you know, sports guy. Goliath is just this huge, huge giant of a man, and David is this teenager, and he kills him with a stone in a sling, and it's not like a slingshot, it's this thing that he whirls around and lets it go, and the stone flies, hits Goliath in the head, knocks him down, David runs over, grabs a sword, cuts off his head, and he wins the battle. And so we're familiar, most of us at least, uh, with that story, but what we're not familiar with is what happens at the end of that story. And what, what was going on then is Saul's watching kind of from the sidelines. He sees David doing this and he says, I got to meet that guy. I want to go and talk to him and find out more about him. And I want us to pick up the story in 1 Samuel chapter 18. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David and he loved him as himself. Now let me just stop there. If there's any tweens here, they became BFFs best friends forever. Isn't that nice? You know, we'd call it soulmates. You know, our kids call it BFFs BFFs or or whatever it is. Uh, And verse two, from that day, Saul kept David with him and did not love and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant or an agreement with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword and his bow and his belt. So Jonathan and David, that day, Jonathan sees David, he sees what's happened, and he says, that's my guy. That's my guy. He saw how David defeated Goliath. Not just how David defeated Goliath, but the fact that David said to Goliath, you come out at me with the sword and with the spear, but 
I'm coming to you in the name of the Lord, the God who made heaven and earth. And I think that's part of what knit Jonathan's heart and his soul to David. So they became soulmates. And then it says that David entered into military service in Saul's army. Saul says, man, this guy can beat Goliath. He's in my army. He's going to be one of my commanders in my army. And things went well for a while. David's, you know, defeating some of the enemies, the Philistines especially. Everybody's happy about it. But then things began to get a little bit dicey because you see, just like, in, just like today, in those days there were sometimes these rivalries. And what happened was people started singing these songs about Saul and David and they're saying, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his ten thousands. And Saul begins to get a little bit jealous of David. And in fact, he became so jealous that he wanted to uh, kill him. See, today, if that happened, they would just be dismissed or some scandal would be created and they'd be pushed off to the side. In those days, no, they just go off and say, okay, we've got to get rid of David, let's kill him. You know? And so this puts Jonathan in a tough position. I mean, think about the situation that Jonathan is in. His father, Saul, the king, wants to have his best friend, David, killed. So what's Jonathan going to do? Whose side is he going to come down on? Is he going to side with dad or is he going to side with his best friend? Let's take a look at chapter 19 here. Saul told his son Jonathan and all the attendants to kill David. But Jonathan had taken a great liking to David and warned him, my father Saul is looking for a chance to kill you. Be on your guard tomorrow morning. Go into hiding and stay there. I will go out and stand with my father in the field where you are. I'll speak to him about you and will tell you what I find out. So Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and he said to him, let not the king do wrong to his servant David. He's not wronged you, and what what he's done has benefited you greatly. He took his life in his hands when he killed the Philistine, and the Lord won a great victory for all Israel, and you saw it and were glad. Why then would you do wrong to an innocent man like David by killing him for no reason? Saul listened to Jonathan and he took this oath. As surely as the Lord lives, David will not be put to death. So Jonathan protected his friend David from his own father Saul. He decided to do what he could to meet the needs of his friend. He was a good friend to David. He took a risk losing favor with his father and instead he chose to help out David in this way. Unfortunately, this didn't completely solve the problem, and uh, David continued in his military victories. He continued to do better than Saul did, and Saul began to see him as more and more and more of a threat. And if you're a psychologist or a psychiatrist and you're reading these things, you'd probably diagnose Saul as some sort of a paranoid, delusional, schizophrenic, you know, or or whatever it is here. And uh, Saul becomes more and more enraged at what's going on with David. And it even comes to the point where Saul begins to suspect that Jonathan is more loyal to David than he is to Saul. And this creates a pretty significant problem that, that comes up here in chapter 20 of 1 Samuel. Verse 30, Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan and he said to him, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman. Now, let me just stop there. You're kind of laughing at that one, okay? That's not what it really says in the Hebrew, okay? But we're in, you know, polite company here. The closest I, I, I'm willing to come this morning to what it actually says in the Hebrew, I'm using a different, I'll use a different translation. It says, 
quote, you stupid son of a whore. Now that's about as close as we can come to what it's really saying there in the Hebrew here in in polite company. If you ever think that the Bible is not realistic in the way that it portrays what's going on, take a look at chapters like this. He is cursing him out pretty good. And the thing is, I mean, think about this for a second. What is Saul doing? He's trying to curse out his son, but he's, you know, he's sort of besmirching his wife's reputation. Something, you know, this is not a good thing here. This guy is, is pretty messed up. So he says, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman, don't you know that you've sided with the son of Jesse, that's David, to your own shame and to the shame of the mother who bore you? As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now send someone to bring him to me, for he must die. Did you catch what Saul was saying in there? We wouldn't necessarily get this because we don't live in a society with a king, with a monarch, but anybody in that society would have immediately caught this actually several chapters ago. David's friendship, uh, sorry, Jonathan's friendship with David was risking Jonathan's claim to the throne because you see what had happened is some years earlier Saul had made it very clear that he didn't have a heart for God that he was in it for himself that he was going to look out for number one me myself and I and God said to him you know what you're no longer going to be king your kingdom is not going to endure because you don't have a heart for me instead I'm going to take it away from you and I'm going to give it to somebody else someone who has a heart for me and he had Samuel the prophet the guy that wrote the book that we're looking at now he had Samuel the prophet go and anoint David as the next king so in effect for all these years it's not just been that Saul is jealous because David is winning more military victories than Saul is winning. He's also jealous because he knows that God has taken the throne away from him and he's eventually going to give it to David. And so Saul is some sort of a lame duck king during this period of time. And the thing that we might miss is Jonathan is Saul's oldest son. Who's supposed to be the next king? Jonathan. He grew up in the palace from day one, from his earliest remembrance, expecting that he's going to be the king. He's been groomed for it. He's been trained for it. He's been taught how to do it. And if David's going to be the king, that means that Jonathan doesn't have that opportunity. And Saul says, what kind of an idiot are you? As long as that son of Jesse, as long as that David is still alive, you're never going to be king. And so Jonathan's faced with the choice. Not only is he going to have to choose between his father and his best friend, he's got to choose between his lifelong plan and dream of becoming the king or following what God wants and having David become the king. And Jonathan chose David because Jonathan had already chosen God. Jonathan chose to support David rather than Saul, because his ultimate allegiance wasn't to his father, and his ultimate allegiance actually wasn't even to David, and it certainly wasn't to himself. His ultimate allegiance was to God, and that's why he was able to choose David over his, over his father and over what his father wanted to do. And so Jonathan said, no, I'm not going to go, and I'm not going to help you kill him. 
So some months later, uh, Saul is still trying to kill David. And this is going on and on and on for a period of months and probably even years. And so Jonathan knows that David's getting pretty discouraged by this. And he goes to him and he he wants to try to encourage him. And, And let's take a look at 1 Samuel 23. So while David was at Horash in the desert of Ziph, he learned that Saul had come out to take his life. And Saul's son Jonathan went to David at Horesh, and here's the key phrase, he helped him find strength in God. Jonathan went to David to help him find strength in God, to, to point him to God and say, let's keep our compasses aligned to the God of heaven and earth. I know things don't look good right now, but God's in control. We can trust in him. Let's do it. He said, don't be afraid, verse 17. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel and I will be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. The two of them made a covenant before the Lord and then Jonathan went home, but David remained at Horesh. So why was Jonathan willing to help David? Because he had a relationship with the, the, the ultimate king of the universe, the God who created heaven and earth, who created Saul, who created Jonathan, who created David, who put Saul on the throne, who could have put Jonathan on the throne, but chose David, not because of any problem with Jonathan, but because of a problem with Jonathan's father, Saul. And Jonathan wasn't bitter about this. He didn't say to God, hey, it's my father who's the jerk. Why don't you put me on the throne? He said, okay, you want David on the throne? I'm going with him because I'm going with you, God. And that was the kind of of foundation that Jonathan had for his relationship with David. That's why Jonathan could be that kind of a friend to David, not because David was perfect. He wasn't, and we're going to talk about his imperfections in in the weeks to come. Uh, Not because Jonathan was just this this somehow uh, idealistic, perfect guy. No, it's because he had a relationship with God, and that relationship worked itself out in the character of that being that kind of a friend for David. So Jonathan put David's needs above his own because he valued God's agenda more than he valued his own agenda. Jonathan's moral compass was, was calibrated so that it pointed to God and God's purposes and God's goals, and that worked itself out in Jonathan's character. And it made him just one of my favorite examples of what a true friend really ought to look like. In John chapter 15 in the New Testament, uh, Jesus is, is talking to his followers. And in verse 12, he says to them, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. And that's the kind of character that Jonathan exhibited. He was willing to lay down his life not just his physical life. I mean, Saul could have killed him while he was trying to kill David. And, and there was a time when actually Saul threw a spear at Jonathan and, and missed him. But uh, his, while his physical life might have been in danger, he was willing to lay down, in a sense, his entire life, not just the, the physical part, but his hopes, his dreams, his desires, his plans to be the king of Israel. He laid that all down for the sake of his friend because of the foundation he had in his relationship with God. And Jesus showed us that same kind of love, and he demonstrated that kind, same kind of, uh, of character as a friend. He sacrificed his life on the cross. He left heaven, came to earth, God became a man, 
lived among us, went through all the challenges and difficulties that we have. He was cold, he was hungry, he was tired, all those different things. He suffered, he died on a cross because that's the kind of God who he is. That's the kind of character that he had. He laid down his life for, in one sense you could say for his friends, but in another sense you could say, well, were we his friends at that time? I mean, many of us didn't like Jesus when we first heard about him. Some of us are still saying, I'm not so sure that I know, you know whether I like Jesus. We're not perfect. We're all broken. We're all fallen. We all mess up. We're flawed, just like David was, just like Jonathan was. Jesus himself, of course, was not flawed. He wasn't broken. He, he, he was perfect. But Jesus doesn't love us because of who we are. He loves us because of who he is, because of the kind of God that he is. That's the kind of friend that we have who loves us unconditionally, who knows our faults, and who still wants to be our friend in spite of that. And not only wants to be our friend, he wants us to develop and he wants us to grow and he wants, to be, wants us to become more and more and more people of character, people who are good friends to one another, people who love each other unconditionally, people who love him and who follow him and who want to worship him and who want to glorify him. That's the kind of God that we have and that's the kind of character uh, that he has. What kind of friend do we want? We want the kind of friend that's going to love us for who we are, who's going to appreciate how God has made us, who, who wants to meet our needs and, and our desires, who like us in, sp- in spite of the fact that they know our faults. And that's the kind of friend that I think most of us want to be to other people. You know, we know when we fall down. We know when we hurt somebody. We know when we fall short of the ideal that we have, when we don't exhibit the kind of character that we want to exhibit in our relationships, when we don't have the kind of character in our relationships and our friendships that Jonathan and Jesus exhibited in theirs. And we here at Renaissance have a a number of goals, a number of uh, parts to our mission. And one of those key parts to our mission is we want to help people Wherever you are in your relationship with God, whether you're really early on in your spiritual journey, maybe today is the first time in your entire life that you've been to church, you're just beginning to think about God and about Jesus, or maybe you've been away for a number of years and you're just coming back for the first time in a long time. Maybe you're a little bit further along, or maybe you've been a follower of Jesus since since as far back as you can remember, and you'd say, yeah, I am pretty close to God. Wherever you are in your relationship with God, we want to help you to take that next step, to move further along in your spiritual journey, to grow in your faith, to grow in your relationship with God. That's why we've got our Sunday morning services. That's why we've got our Sunday evening monthly Vesper services. That's why we've got the spiritual formation groups that Rich was telling us about earlier. That's why we've got the Thursday morning women's groups. That's why we do all these different things to provide opportunities and and environments for all of us to grow in our relationship with God. And as we do that, as our moral compasses, as our hearts become more and more aligned with with Jesus and his purposes, he's going to begin to develop in us more and more the kind of character that Jonathan exhibited and that Jesus exhibits. Jonathan's a great example of good character in a friendship. 
So is Jesus, and he's an incredible illustration of what a friend ought to look like. But Jesus is more than just a good example or or an interesting illustration. Our relationship with him becomes the foundation for the character that we want to develop and, and that we can have and that God ultimately will develop in us as we grow in our relationship with him. So let me encourage you to seek after God to spend some time to reflect on what he's done, to take advantage of the opportunities that we have here. Because as God works in our hearts to draw us nearer to himself, we will grow more and more and more to become like Jonathan in our friendships, to become like Jesus in our relationships as well. And it's all because of what God is doing in our hearts. Let me ask, let, let, let me ask God, I'd like to pray for us that he'll work in our hearts to draw us nearer to himself and to develop in us that kind of character. Father, thanks for the life of Jonathan. What an incredible example of someone who is willing to sacrifice for his friend, to put aside his own hopes and dreams and desires for that of his friend, ultimately because he had that relationship with you. And Father, I pray that you would draw us nearer to yourself. Help us to know you better. Help us to grow in our love for you. And as we do, Father, I pray that you produce in us the kind of love for those around us, the kind of character in our friendships that we would like for others to have as they relate to us. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.